Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Welcome, Herstory Heroes, to a brand new year and the same whining about Herstory. We're still here to tell you stories of badass babes while we drink wine. I mean, that's the yeah, gist that's of the it. that's the gist of it. Yeah, who are you? I'm Kelly. Who am I? You're Emily. Oh my God, I am. 2020 <laughs> and I'm still Emily and that Woo-hoo. is so depressing. No, no. You're amazing. <laughs> you, okay, so it's funny. We're recording this. We're coming to you from the past people and not just in the metaphorical we're talking about past women sense but we're literally recording back from in 2019 year. different year so you said like welcome to the new year and i was like no what by oh, the time sh- this releases <laughs> yeah yeah our last episode was our last one of 2019 and we're starting the year off strong yeah we are yeah well, hopefully Praying to God. Praying to God. I have some high hopes for 2020, and I am praying I'm not disappointed. It's like I have some high hopes for this wine that we're drinking today. If you're disappointed, I'm going to feel really bad. We were supposed to drink this for our last episode. Two episodes ago. One of our last two episodes. It's two episodes ago. No, because... Because we had the Rioja... And then the rosé, and then this is another Rioja, which is I, why we didn't drink them back right. to back. That's right. Okay. Well, I opened the wrong bottle because Kelly had already brought it to the studio, and I'm up in the kitchen. I'm like, well, I know she wanted to drink that other one, but I don't see it anywhere, so I guess I'll just open this. <laughs> and then Kelly's like, the wine is downstairs, you dumb asshole. <laughs> I never said any of that. I no, did say, but- I did say the wine's right here, but I didn't call her a dumb asshole. Well, I felt it. Your <laughs> eyes called me a dumb asshole. <laughs> okay. So we're really excited to drink this, and I'm really hoping that- I am. I'm excited. It doesn't dash this. our hopes, like, hopefully 2020 also doesn't dash our hopes for a brighter no. future. We're putting good vibes out into the universe. You know what? Here's my prediction. 2020 is going to be- the year of whining about her street. We're going to connect with some awesome other podcasters. We're going to connect with some more her street heroes. We're going to get more Patreon. We're going to get more followers. More, 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 more. More wine. Give away her street. It's going to be great. Yes. We're super excited. Okay. So the wine we're drinking to get to that. I yeah. We've it, been building a, it up. It's a Rioja. So it's called the Marquis de Caceres, so it's from Spain. And we learned uh, that Rioja Rioja is not red. (laughs) It doesn't, it's not like some fancy version of the word red in Spanish. It is actually a wine region. I keep hitting my mic. Okay, it says Marques de Caceres Crianza is made from (laughs) Tempranillo grapes selected by hand, vinified with care, and aged in French and American oak barrels for 12 months. Further aging in bottle for several months highlights its red berry fruit structure and complexity. Silky, smooth, and elegant in the mouth. Ooh, elegant in the mouth. I like I that. I like that, too. But here, here's what drew me into it and why I think it's going to be good. Okay. So this is what the sign at the liquor store said. It said, leafy, licorice, and spicy notes frame a core of cherry and vanilla in this broad red with light, firm tannins and savory finish. I'm like, I like licorice. I like cherry. I like vanilla. Well, okay. What kind of licorice is it, though? Because if it's black licorice, we have a yeah, problem. Yeah, that's the only kind I like. You you like black licorice? Yeah. And I don't like red licorice. Oh, my God. I mean, like, I guess 
like because what the standard licorice is cherry yeah it's like like twizzlers yeah but Which they I have like licorice, I can't remember but. if that's cherry or strawberry. But then they have like the other one that's you know. So if Twizzlers is strawberry, the other one's cherry, or vice versa. Yeah, the other red is okay. Okay, <laughs> but I mean cherry just like or black. strawberry is okay. whichever one isn't base Twizzler flavor. I want to say it's strawberry is not base Twizzler flavor. Also, Twizzlers aren't actually licorice. I don't know why I brought that up, but it's my understanding of licorice. I'm excited. I don't think we've had a wine with this kind of description. No, and our glasses aren't going to clink. That's okay. We're drinking out of our plastic fucking patriarchy wine glasses because this is the year of fuck the patriarchy. And here is to the year of history. Year of history. Cheers. <laughs> so pathetic. The saddest little clunk. I don't even know if you guys could hear it, but it was, it was very sad. There it was. It was Clink. just delayed. <laughs> Ooh. This wine tastes romantic. Is that weird? Yeah, a little. I mean, we do have like the mood lighting and everything. We do. Um, I we, do like it. We are going to be recording an unboxing video. And in it, I am. we're going to highlight one of the gifts that Kelly got me that yeah. is setting our mood Yay. lighting for this episode. And it's fucking amazing. So subscribe to our Patreon to see that right now. Ooh. Pause. Go subscribe to our Patreon. You can do it for just one buck a month. Welcome back. back. <laughs> Welcome back, you $1 donor, you. That's actually really good. Mm-hmm. I like they said, what did they say, like steady or smooth tannins? Because this is very smooth. Look it up again. It's not, it's not acidic. It's not terribly abrasive. No, like. It's a nice, smooth red. It's very mellow. Yeah, it's I not like, like it. communion wine. Like, <laughs> It said firm tannins and a savory finish. That's and then the it. bottle said silky smooth and elegant in the mouth. That's, I mean, that's absolutely correct. This is so really low. good. Sorry. I also like that this wine took longer to make than a human child. Right. I respect that. Like, no, no, no. You can make a baby in nine months, but it takes 12 months to make a good damn wine. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It is good, though. I do like it. Yeah, I highly Perhaps. recommend this, especially this, this, if you don't like reds. I think last episode and the episode before, we were talking about like the wine rating. This one only got a 90, which is the lowest of the three. Bullshit. But I actually think this is better than the other red we had. Yeah. No, I like this more. So, I, I'm getting all like warm and fuzzy. Like It's clearing out my sinuses slowly, which Another I need. good winter wine. Oh, yeah. I want to uh, Reds be, are good winter wines. I want to be in front of a fireplace naked on like a white plush rug. I'm going to let her do that alone. With some wine. No, because <laughs> you have to be there so we can watch Veronica Mars. Okay. <laughs> There's a TV above the fireplace. Yes. I, well, how is this confusing to you? It's not. I understand now. Okay. All right. So. Who's our first history hero, Emily? Our, okay. I didn't of realize. Of 2020. I didn't realize this was going to be our first history hero of 2020, so I could have probably picked someone a little more intense, but this story is crazy. I was going to go with Zelda crazy. Fitzgerald, because she's a big <gasps> icon of the 20s, but oh, I didn't. Oh my, well, we have but to. But I'm going to cover her at some point in 2020, but I'm like, her story is just so in-depth, plus then they had that, like, a few years ago they released, like, the TV show about her called, like, Zelda. Zelda, yeah. So I want to finish watching that because I had started it. And so I want to finish watching that so I can give, like, hey, it's super accurate or not super accurate. Like, there's just yeah. a few things I want to do before I cover her. You know what's funny? Uh, There's that 
movie that Owen Wilson is in. I think it's Midnight in Paris. And basically he he has this very romantic image of the 20s and wants to meet all of the writers from then. And yeah. Zelda Fitzgerald is in it That's cool. with her husband. Yeah. And you kind of look like her in that movie because she's got the short, like, blonde hair with the, like, it's the it's the crimp, but you've got the curl. Hey, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So you, and that, oh God, she was played by... A. Palmer. She was Kim Pines in Scott Pilgrim. She was also in that movie Milk. Fuck, I love Audrey Palmer. But yeah, I it mean, could be Audrey Palmer. IMDb Scott Pilgrim. She's Kim Pines. She's the best. But yeah, you kind of look like her. Okay. Anyway, this woman may not be as impactful as some of the other women we've covered, but her story is a trip. Hey, I'm okay with that. So we are tripping into 2020 with. Lady Mary Banks. It is. That Biggs? Banks. Banks. Yeah, we are falling face first into 2020. (laughs) Super accurate. 2019 was just like one long, it started with a trip and then it was just one long fall to the ground. Fall to the ground, yeah. (laughs) Yep, so I'm covering Lady Mary Banks, also known as Brave Day Mary. And just very awesome. Yeah. Okay. Mary Banks was born as Mary Hawtrey in Ricelip, Middlesex, England on August 8th, 1603 or 1598 or somewhere in that general time frame. Who knows? In 1618, at 20 years old, she married Sir John Banks, an up-and-coming lawyer who would later become Attorney General to King Charles I and the Lord Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. He was knighted by Charles I in 1631. In other words... He was kind of a big deal. Yeah. He was a big man on campus. In 1635, Sir John purchased Corfe Castle, which I had to fix my pronunciations because it's spelled C-O-R-F-E. So I thought it was Corfe. And so that's how I'm saying this in my head. I'm like, I'm going to say Corfe. It's going to sound like I'm saying coffee in a really incorrect way. <laughs> really you know, some people like add an R like Corfe. Yeah, well, a cup of coffee. No, it's Corf. Um, so he purchased Corf Castle and the associated lands in Purebeck Hills of Dorset. Corf, Corf Castle. I. It looks like coffee. I hate this. Spell it like you say it, England. Corf had impressive defenses and its newly constructed twenty-one meter high or sixty-nine feet for our American listeners. Keep loomed intimidatingly over the surrounding land. So it's got this super tall fucking keep. And honestly, I like feet better because 69 is a sexier number than 21. Now, Too I'm sh- very. <laughs> now, I'm sure Sir John was busy with all of this, all of his professional duties, but he made enough time for Mary that they had 10 children. That's quite a bit of time. Thank God they had a castle to put them all in. (laughs) Right. And I I found a list of their children online. And for like six of them, it said, oh, this person married this person. This person married this person. I didn't want to outright say that, okay, well, at least six of them survived to adulthood. But bare minimum, six six survived. That's still a fuck ton of kids. It's a Brady Bunch situation. So life was pretty typical for Mary. She likely busied herself with raising her 10 children, entertaining royal visitors, and running the castle. But nothing shakes up your routine like a good old-fashioned civil war. 
The English Civil War was like those couples who are always on again, off again, as it was actually a series of civil wars and political dust up. So it was like, okay, the Civil War. Oh, just kidding. Right. It's like a rash. It just keeps flaring up. The two sides were the parliamentarians and the royalists, and they were fighting over how the country should be governed, parliament or continued monarchy. And I'm not even going to explain who was on which side because it's pretty self-explanatory. When the English Civil War initially broke out in 1642, Mary's husband was called to fight for King Charles I as part of the royalist forces, because duh, leaving Mary to care for Corf Castle. She shared the castle with her daughters because she had sent her sons away for some reason. Maybe they were fighting. I don't know. Servants and five guards. There's like a handful of people in this place. Unfortunately for them, Corf Castle was a target. As the war wore on, haha, Corf Castle became the last royalist garrison on the Dorsetshire coast. The castle's inhabitants couldn't just lay low and wait out the storm. So it's... Like, I think in war, it's like, okay, what makes a, a location desirable? Like, why can't, you know, who are the people who can't just be like, okay, I'm just going to lay low and wait this out? They were not those people. In May of 1643, parliamentarian forces consisting of two to 300 men came knocking on Corf Castle's door. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. Yes. The intense part of the movie. It, it the is. music, it's all quiet and it's like dark and eerie outside. See, and I'm imagining it almost like Monty Python. Like they literally knock on the, the front <laughs> with the That's coconuts. Mary yells over, how did you get a coconut? A swallow carried it in. Well, an African swallow or an English swallow? European. European African swallow. European. Well, if a swallow is able to fly. Right, then God. you get into the math. <laughs> yep. like, I guess we're just leaving now. So, anyway, parliamentarian forces demanded that Mary surrender the castle. Mary had been prepared for this eventuality and politely declined by firing cannons on the enemy forces, driving them away. They were basically super not expecting this. And so the second she starts firing, they're like, nope, nope, nope. We're done. We're done. (laughs) So this has really shocked the forces because they had not expected much resistance from a castle occupied by a handful of people, the majority of whom were women because it was... Her, her daughters, like her handmaids, and then five dudes. Sounds right. And, and they're probably like old dudes. Oh, yeah. You they, know, it's like the elder guard. Yeah, they were the ones that the king was like, you guys just chill. You guys just, just protect the castle. Yeah, we can't afford to wait for you. And your creaking is disturbing the horses. <laughs> Those are my joints. I know. <laughs> So Mary sent a messenger to reach out to royalist forces, asking them to send soldiers to help her defend the castle. Royalist forces sent 80 additional men who manned the middle ward of the castle while Mary took charge of the upper ward. So I just like imagine the ground there's like the middle area. And then she's like on top of that 69 foot keep like bring it, motherfuckers. That was not the end, however. On June 28th of the same year, the parliamentarians returned, this time with 500 to 600 troops to begin their siege on the castle. I love that it's still just like 10 people inside the castle. Yeah, like, okay, they sent 80 people. That's a lot more than, what, 10? But still, like, they originally came to the castle not expecting resistance. No, With, like, 300 people. It's like... 80 people we're we're sick of listening to them they all snore you go deal with the castle yeah like no so no one would have blamed mary for peacing out at this point because honestly 
who has who has the time for that? Right. But we wouldn't be telling the story if she had. Instead, Mary and her small force fought to repel the enemy by throwing stones and hot embers off the castle's battlements. So they are just like, they're not even leaving the castle of fight. They're just defending it from like the tops of the walls and just throwing shit at the enemy. They managed to injure or kill 100 of the parliamentarian forces. So that's like a fifth or a sixth, just with like a handful of people. After six weeks of this craziness, the leader of the parliamentary forces, Sir Walter, had had enough and retreated to their own stronghold. They're like, it has been six weeks. This was supposed to take six minutes. I am so done. Right. Exactly. They're like, this This isn't going the way we want it to. This is a waste. Like what? There's five people in there and they've killed a hundred of ours? You have to be kidding me. Her fierce and implausible resistance earned Mary the nickname Brave Day Mary. Mary knew that this was not the end, and she took the parliamentary retreat as an opportunity to regroup and recover from the onslaught. On December 28th, which is actually upon the day of our recording tomorrow, 1644, Mary suffered a blow worse than anything she had experienced during the siege. She received word that her husband, Sir John, had been killed during the war. And, like, I'm coming off super sympathetic to the royalists because that's the side Mary's on. Yeah. At Whining About Her Street, we're not super pro-monarchy, but this is the story. We're just inclusive when we talk about our women. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks that he died for her, but no monarchy. No, thank you. Things would only get worse for Mary. By the end of the first round of the English Civil War, the parliamentary forces had defeated the royalists. While Cork Castle remained unconquered during this time, the parliamentarians had not forgotten it. This time, the attack wouldn't come from the outside, but from within Corf Castle itself. <gasps> this is like the, the stormy sky, yeah, the dramatic right, yeah. music, and the crack of lightning. Colonel Pittman, or as I like to call him, Colonel Armpit, although... He's fighting for, you know, parliament instead of monarchy, so I'm conflicted. One of the officers working for Mary secretly led parliamentary forces who had disguised themselves by reversing their jackets. Like, I guess the insides of their jackets were the same colors as the royalists, which seems like a problem. (laughs) So he had snuck them into the castle through a sally port, which was like a... Like a back door, basically. So he thought he was helping his own side. No. Oh. I I think it I think it was a legitimate betrayal, but you know they had to get into the castle and then move so around like, without being detected. Other saw them. Okay. Exactly. So the forces were able to overtake the castle from within. According to legend, Mary managed to throw all of her jewelry and treasures down a well to prevent the enemy from taking them. In acknowledgement for her impressive resistance, she was allowed to keep the castle's seal and keys. And actually, there is a portrait of her where she's in all black and there is a stormy sky behind her. And she is clutching those beautiful silver keys and looking like she knows she has wrecked a lot of people's worlds. And she's like, I would do it again, damn it. Upon seizing Corf Castle, the parliamentarians could do whatever they wanted with it, make it their own stronghold, sell it to fund their continued operations, or pillage it for resources. Instead, they blew it up. Oh! <laughs> they blew up the Did, fucking castle. I really hope they, like, pillaged it first and then blew it up, because that sure, makes the most sense. I'm sure they did, and that that was, like, a common move to blow up 
Uh, That's ridiculous. Blow up a location that has military applications to prevent anyone else from using it. Because yeah. it's like, it can't hurt you and now. I mean, like, this one, this was... It okay. seems silly. It yeah. seems like such a waste. And you can, like, see pictures of the ruins of this castle. And before I got to this part, I was like... Man, I wonder how that layout was, because it looks like it's just kind of a skeleton that's, like, buried in the ground. Oh, no, it was blown up. No wonder it's yeah. trash. So Mary died on April 11th, 1661, and was buried in St. Martin's Church in Ricelip, where she had been born. On the south wall of the church, there is a monument to Mary that reads, To the memory of Mary, Lady Banks, the only daughter of Ralph Haltry of Ricelip, in the country of Middlesex Esquire, the wife and widow of Sir John Banks, Knight, late Lord Chief Justice of His Majesty's Court of Common Pleas, and, uh, (laughs) I know, I have to take a breath, (gasps) and of the Privy Council of His Majesty King Charles I of Blessed Memory, who, having had the honor... (gasps) To have born with a constancy and courage above her sex, because women can't be brave, a noble proportion of the late calamities and the restitution of the government, with great peace of mind laid down her most desired life on the 11th day of April 1661. That was all one sentence. Second sentence. Sir Ralph Banks, her son, and her hath dedicated this. Oh, and... Air hath dedicated this. You're good. That whole paragraph was one fucking sentence. Jeez. Legacy. Mary's story is steeped in legend, and it's difficult to determine which parts were true and which aren't. For example, while Mary was definitely an active participant in the early defenses of the castle, it's unlikely she was at the eventual surrender of Corfe Castle. No, they were probably like, you need to get the fuck out. So when parliamentary... When parliamentarian colonels wrote of finally taking the castle, they didn't mention Mary at all, which you think they would because she is the owner of the castle, essentially, since her husband's away. And records actually place Mary in London with her daughters at the time where they were trying to reclaim some of the family's fortune. It's likely that Mary had left Corfe Castle upon learning of the death of her husband and records show she was selling off assets, which makes sense considering the royalists were losing and she had to ensure her family would be taken care of. She's like, exactly. I get that. My husband's dead. The side he was fighting on is losing. I got to take care of me. This was and my like, daughters. Yeah, exactly. She's like, I'm a lady. All I have is my husband or my money. I got to have my money. Regardless, Mary's fierce defense of Corfe Castle, with only a few people to back her, is amazingly brave and badass. So that whole first, like, you know, her throwing the treasure down the well was probably made up, but the whole first half of that story definitely true, yeah. The keys to Corfe Castle that Mary was allowed to keep allegedly, are now held at the the Kingston Lacey Estate in Dorset, which became the Banks family home after Corfe Castle was taken. And the place is gorgeous, so she definitely did all right after everything was said and done. It is lovely. Is it? Yep. Also, there are infant and junior schools in Ricelip named Lady Banks in her honor. So her legend persists, regardless of which parts are true or not. Like, she's highly regarded in Ricelip, the town where she was born. And I actually, this was a request by my boyfriend because he was watching a Lindy Beige video, which if you haven't checked him out and you're into history, definitely check him out. But he was doing a video on sieges and Jared heard of this lady. He goes, Emily, I found your next lady. You have to cover her. It's crazy. 
But this story was so dramatic. And like, right. there were times like when I got to the part about the traitor, I out loud yelled, you asshole. Like I was so into this research. And it's a shorty, but a goody like me. Aw, so cute. I'm sorry. Like, it took me a minute to No, that's okay. My humor is deep and complex like this wine. And soft on the mouth. And soft on the mouth. Elegant mouthfeel. Firm tannins. The tannins are my butt cheeks. (laughs) All right, then. All righty. Mine's a longer story. So you you guys have to just listen to me talk today. That's fine, though. I like when we kind of even out where it's like we're not both doing six, six page stories. All right. So I guess I'll just jump into mine then. Dive on in. So I I am covering someone famous in the 1920s. Her name is Anna Mae Wong, or at least that's the name she gave herself. I've never heard of her, and I'm really excited that you're going with a theme. Yeah, apparently. I don't think I'll be able to keep it up through all of 2020. We are exclusively covering women of the 1920s, and we're going to talk like we're on the radio the whole right. time. It'd be all flappers. Yeah, we're just going to wear flapper flappers. dresses for yeah, the year. I have one. Year. I do party. not. I have one. I should stop at Goodwill. What I should have done was at Halloween. Yeah, or like right after Halloween. Yeah, but it was kind of one of those things where I was like, yeah, I could, but I don't feel like it. <laughs> I'm having a roaring 20s themed uh new year's party it'll be over by the time this comes out we'll post pictures kelly's gonna be cute as hell and i'll probably wear a dress that looks like it's from the 60s so it'll be shunned it's a different period shun the (laughs) non-believer so anna may wong was born wong lu song um which literally lu song literally means willow frost oh pretty that's lovely yeah um, so she was born on January 3rd, 1905 on Flower Street in Los Angeles, oh, which is one block north of Chinatown. She's named after a tree and she was born on Flower How Street. Cute. Is she like a super famous herbalist? Please tell me no. she like fought for weed legalization or no. something. She's an actress. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So she was born into an integrated community of Chinese, Irish, German, and Japanese residents. You know, it's back wow. when they had all those tenements. Yeah. Um, she was the second child of seven bo- born to Wong Sam Singh, owner of the Sam Key Laundry, and his second wife, Lee Gon Toy. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her dad. So it was his parents that, orig- er, that originally came to America. So okay. her dad's first generation, and then she's a second generation he Chinese American. He was born American. in the States. Yep. Okay. And her paternal grandfather was a merchant, so that's kind of where her dad picked it up. Her father spent his youth traveling between the U.S. and China, because obviously he had family in both places. He married his first wife and father to son in 1890 in China, and then returned to the U.S. in the late 1890s and married Anna's mother. <laughs> so... It doesn't say if he ever got divorced. I just kind of assume he had two families, but I don't know. Have you ever heard those stories where it's like someone dies and all of a sudden it like there's a weird group of people at the funeral and you find out that good old dad had like eight families? Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's even more common or was a lot more common when you had people, yeah, that would travel between two countries. Well, and who can keep track of that? Exactly. Like now. No one's going to know. People like have social media and you can look up someone pretty easily if they're not careful. Right. But back then it's like sometimes you still hear about people doing that and they're just not, you know, either they're not they tell one significant other they're not on social media or they're literally just not on social media. Yep. You know, or they they, have and then they take business trips. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. But like back then, if you weren't in the same room with someone, you had no right. idea where they were or what they were doing yeah. ever. But that was her dad. So. So in 1910, the family moved to the neighborhood of Figaro Street, where they were the only Chinese people on their block. Living alongside mostly Mexican and Eastern European families, there were two hills separating their new home from Chinatown, and it helped them to assimilate to American culture. Because, okay. you know, suddenly they weren't around their culture. They weren't in, they weren't uh, immersed in other exactly. Chinese. Okay. That's um, got to be a fascinating upbringing. You're living with your own Chinese culture, but then also Mexican and Eastern European. Yeah. Like. Oh, yeah. It has to be. I wonder what your accent sounds like. Probably. I mean, this is, what, California or Los Angeles? Yeah. So, California. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Probably you probably don't really have you you have a Californian accent, I would assume. Everyone talked like a valley girl. No. No. <laughs> Her street head canon. <laughs> Everyone was in clueless. Um so she attended public school with her older sister at first. And then um, when the two girls became a target of racial taunts from other students, they moved to a Presbyterian Chinese school. Classes were taught in English, but she did choose to attend a Chinese language school in the afternoons and on Saturdays. Good for her because it's really easy to lose that, you know, especially if you're trying to fit in and you're being taunted for being Chinese. Like, yeah, exactly. Being bilingual is amazing. Like, good for her. So, So she's she's nine at this time. And about this time is when the U.S. motion picture production began to relocate to Los Angeles. Mm um, and movies were constantly shot in and around her neighborhood. She began to go- going to the Nickelodeon movie theaters, and she quickly became obsessed with what was known as flickers. Flickers. I'm like, that's interesting. Also, Nickelodeon is not the children's TV channel that brought us lovelies like no. Rugrats. It was what they used to call it. It was like the five cent movie theaters, right? Yep. And that's why they called them Nickelodeons. Yep. So she would miss school and use her lunch money to attend the cinema. Good girl. Uh, her father was not happy about her interest in films. He felt that it interfered with her studies, which clearly it did. Yeah, he was not wrong. Um, he but may she... have had a second family, yeah, right. but he was right in this sense. Um, she decided to go after it anyways. Which yeah, she's like, most it. people do. At the age of nine, like I said, um, she was constantly begging filmmakers to give her roles, earning herself the nickname CCC or Curious Chinese Child. Oh my God. Yeah. That might have to be the episode title, but I feel like that might be super racist. CCC. Yeah, C dot, C dot, And then just don't. C cubed. Yeah. By the age of 11, Wong had come up with her stage name, Anime Wong. So because she where, it had to know. be more Americanized. Uh, yeah, it, she formed it by joining both her English and family names. That's sweet. So early, early next next section, early career. So first she went on to she worked at a department store um, and she heard that Metro Pictures needed 300 female extras to appear in the film The Red Lantern uh, without her father's knowledge, but with help of a friend of her father's who had connections in the movie, she landed an uncredited role as an extra carrying a lantern. Okay. So that's her first, like, on screen. I love how she's complaining and bullying her way into these movies, by the way. She's literally whining her way into her street. You know, she has connections a little bit, you know. Um, So she worked steadily for the next two years as extras in various movies. She was still a student at this time, 
Um, unfortunately, during this time, she also came down with, at the time, what was known as St. Vitus's Dance. That's what it was called. St. Vitus's Vittis- Dance. It's also known as Sydenham's Sign- Choria or Choria Minor. I like you keep saying these names as if it's going to give me any kind of clarity on um, what you're talking about. It's a about. disorder characterized by rapid, uncoordinated jerking movements, primarily affecting the face, hands, and feet. Oh, so she had like the the twitching tics. Yeah. Oh, God, that sucks. Yeah. First, it caused her to miss months of school. She was on the verge of emotional collapse when her father took her to a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. The treatments proved successful, though Though Anna later claimed this had more to do with her dislike of the methods. Oh, so she, like, willed herself to yeah, be she's better like, God because damn she's it. like, I hate going to the doctor. Can I do that? Yeah, right. That's the greatest health insurance. I hate going to the doctor so much. I'm going to will my body to be healthy. <laughs> I'm doing it right now. I'm putting all my energy into it. I believe. Oh my God. I believe. I believe. So she found it difficult, obviously, to keep up with both her schoolwork and her passion. So she dropped out of the Los Angeles High School in 1921 to, pers- to pursue a full-time acting career. She's just a teenager. Uh, reflecting on her decision, she told Motion Picture Magazine in 1931, quote, I was so young when I began that I knew I still had youth if I failed, so I determined to give myself 10 years to succeed as an actress, end quote. I mean, that's pretty sound logic. Like my friend Tierney, who uh, quit her shitty job to pursue her art. Like she's got a side gig for extra income, but it's kind of like I'm young. I don't have any kids. I don't have any serious obligations. Like this is the best time to do it. This is the time to do it. Exactly. So I get that. She received her first screen credit in 1921 in the movie Bits of Life which was an anthology film, so it was like a collection of short films, Yep, in which she played the wife of Lon Chaney's character, Toy Ling, in a segment titled Hop. She later recalled it fondly as the only time she, she played the role of a mother, and her appearance earned her a cover photo on the British magazine Picture Show. So she's a teenager playing the role of a mother? Yeah, and she apparently so never Hollywood played another mother. So Hollywood has never changed. No. <laughs> At the age of 17, she played her first leading role. Um, it was in a two two color Technicolor movie, the Troll or the Toll, the Toll of the Sea. The story was based loosely on Madame Butterfly. Oh, she received a ton of praise for this. Variety magazines particularly singled her out, saying she had extraordinarily fine acting. The New York Times commented, Miss Wong stirs in the spectator all sympathy her part calls for, and she never repels one by an excess of theatrical feeling. She has a difficult role, a role that has been botched nine times out of ten, but hers is the tenth performance. Completely unconscious of the camera and with a fine sense of proportion and remarkable pantomimic accuracy, she, sh- she should be seen again and often on the screen. Wow. That's intense praise. Yeah. Like, let's remember, she did not train to be an actress. No. She was just she literally super was just into like, the hey, movies. Hey, hey, put me in a movie. Put me in a movie. Hey, put me in a movie. Oh, my God. Well, and the other thing is, if she was going to the movies all the time, that was probably her training. She was studying the actors and actresses and being like, I see what they did there. I'm going to do that. Yeah. So, wow. Despite such reviews, however, Hollywood proved reluctant to create starring roles for her. Her ethnicity prevented U.S. filmmakers from seeing her as a leading lady. 
So it, L.A. has not changed. Hollywood no. has not changed. Cool. She spent the next few years in supporting roles providing, and I quote, exotic atmosphere. Oh. For instance, playing a concubine or just other things to, you know, in the background. She was she was the like sexy ethnic person in the background yep. to set the scene. Yep. Oh, fuck. Wong appeared on the cover of the Chinese magazine The Young Companion in 1927 at the age of 19. Wow. Um, she was cast in a supporting role as a scheming Mongol slave what? in 1924 and then played a stereotypical dragon lady. Uh, quote, dragon lady. Yeah, we're not calling her that. That's what they call her. Her brief appearances on screen caught the attention of audiences and critics alike. Um, the film grossed more than $2 million and helped help introduce Anna to the public. Around this time, she also had an affair with, a, with the director Todd Browning, this was widely known of, though, because not only was it interracial, but at that time, 19 was still considered underage. Yeah. I, I mean, how old was he? I don't, it doesn't say. Okay. I didn't look it up. It, I mean, I feel like even by our standards, if it skeeved them out, it would probably skeeve us out. Right. Well, but 19 was considered underage back then. It's not anymore. Yeah, so. but it's still like. But it's still probably like. Ugh. You're 19. And you're like baby. 40. Yeah. <laughs> nope. So after the second prominent role, Anna finally moved out of her family home, got her own apartment. Wow. She was very conscious of her image and that everyone viewed her as, quote, foreign born. Even she though, was the token even the, Chinese Yeah, chick. even though that she had been born and raised in California. So she really began cultivating her flapper image, which there's a lot of really cool pictures that I'll show you. And then she decided... Um, to make her own films. She decided to make films about Chinese myths, and she signed a deal creating Anime Wong Productions. However, her business partner was found to be engaging in dishonest practices. No! So she brought a lawsuit against him, and the company was dissolved. So it was kind of one of those things that ended before it started. That's still really cool that she's like, fuck you guys, I'm going to do my own thing, Anime Wong Productions. Right. So it was soon evident that Wong's or Anna's career would continue to be limited in the American market because there were anti anti miscegenation laws which prevented her from sharing an on-screen kiss with any person of another race. Even if the character was Asian, if it was being portrayed by a white actor, she still couldn't kiss them. Because let's remember a lot of prominent Asian characters back then were portrayed by white actors. The only leading Asian man in US films in the silent era was Suse ha Hawakawa. So unless an, an Asian leading man could be found there, she wasn't going to be a leading lady. Wow. And the first interracial kiss on TV wasn't until Star Trek when, um, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I know I know him. The guy who played uh, Captain Kirk. Wh- all, all I can picture is Picard. Like I know. I know. Like- See, I, William Shatner. Yeah, William fucking Shatner. <laughs> I'm. I know who he is. Yeah. I don't I know. know why don't worry. I, I did too. I just completely blanked. But it was uh, Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura. Yep. And that was only because William Shatner kept fucking up all the other takes. There, he's like, okay, well, we'll do one with the with the kiss, and we'll do one without, and you guys can pick whichever one. Yeah, you and like. he just fucked up every other. Yeah, one. and he kept like crossing his eyes or like looking goofy, so they were forced to use the one yep. with the kiss. Yeah, because that's what he wanted, even yep. though he wanted to make it seem like they had power. Yeah. And I I mean that wasn't until what the sixties? 
Probably. Yeah, and Lieutenant Uhura was played by Nichelle Nichols. And I actually saw her at GalaxyCon, but oh, right. I didn't have like 60 bucks to get her yeah. autograph. But it's I was not cheap. I was gushing at her from across the aisle because we were waiting for uh, a photo with Jonathan Frakes because my nice. friend really wanted it. I was like, oh, my God, that's Nichelle Nichols. Oh, my God, she's a goddess. Oh, my God, I love her. And I just I didn't have the money to do the, the, the autograph. The original picture. her? Own? Yes. Okay. Yeah, she's well, and she almost quit Star Trek. Yeah, because she's like, I knew that. Eh, I don't know, whatever. I want to do something a little more serious. And then Martin Luther King Jr. came up to her and he's like, do you have any idea what, what this you're doing? Means? Yeah. Little black girls think they can go into space now. And then one little black girl did and she became the first black woman in space. I can't think of her name right now, but we'll have to cover her Wait, in the I'm future. I'm waiting for Emily to like punch her computer screen. She's I'm like so aggressively excited. shaking my arm around for emphasis because women's history is amazing. Anyway, nice. please go on with your story. <laughs> in, in 1926, Anna put the first rivet into the structure of the Grom- Grauman's Chinese Theater when she joined Norma Talmage for its groundbreaking ceremony. Wait, is that like the Chinese the, Theater? Yep. The one that I'm thinking yep. of? <laughs> she was not invited to leave her hand in footprints in this. Oh, fuck however. them. Yeah. It's the Chinese Theater, you asshole. Hey, she got to put the first rivet in, but nobody probably remembers that. But she couldn't. Oh, yeah. Whatever. In the same year, Wong starred in the Silk Bouquet, uh, which was retitled The Dragon Horse in 1927. The film was one of the first U.S. films to be produced with Chinese backing provided by San Francisco's Chinese six companies. The story was set in China during the Ming Dynasty and featured Asian actors playing Asian roles. Wow. What a concept. I know, right? Um, however, she after that, she continued to be assigned supporting roles. And at uh, this time, Asian female characters tended towards stereotypical things such as the naive self-sacrificing butterfly or the sly deceitful dragon lady yep you're either too pure for the world or you're too much of a bitch in mr Wu, she she played a supporting role as increasing censorship against mixed race on-screen couples cost her the lead in the crimson city released the following year it happened again that's was this like at the time of the Hayes laws probably i would think so there was we covered someone else where that was a thing. Maybe it was like, yep. to, it was Tallulah Bankhead yep. because Mr. Hayes thought she was a bitch and like named yep. her number one in his shitty people book. And right. she's like, I'm proud to be at the and top yeah, of your I, list. And yeah, I believe she fucker. was ni- in 1920. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. So tired of being typecast and being passed over for Asian char- lead Asian character roles in favor of non-Asian actresses. She left Hollywood in 1928 and went to Europe. You know, good for her. I hope this is a Josephine Baker situation where they're like, we love you. In Europe, she became a sensation. Yes! Starring in notable films such as Schmutt... Schmutt? Schmutzgeises Geld, a.k.a. Song and Show Life. And one I'm not even going to pronounce because it has like weird letters that I don't know how to pronounce. It's just uh, full of Known as Pavement Butterfly. Okay. Not even umlauts. Like, it has that weird, like, B, but it's, like, not actually a oh, B. Oh, where it's the really stylized yep. B. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's just So, obviously, she went to B. Germany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that what that is? Um, the New York Times reported that Anna was acclaimed not only as an actress of transcendent talent, but as great beauty. The article noted that Germans passed over Anna's American background 
quoting Berlin critics who were unanimous in praise of both the star and the production, neglect to mention that Anna May is of American birth. They mention only her Chinese origins. Fuck yeah, Germany! You know, what's interesting about that, though, is like... is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I like how they're like, we. she's Chinese and we love her. And they're not like glossing. They're, I mean, they're honoring she, she, it. She wasn't happy with America. So, yeah. you know, it could have partially been her, too, that she, you know. She's like, yeah, don't associate me with right. those, you know, ignorant assholes over there. But exactly. they're, embra- they're, they're acknowledging and embracing her Chinese heritage. And we're like, she's the best Chinese lady we've ever met in the world. Right. And we love her and China and Chinese people. <laughs> Um, while in Germany, Anna became inseparable friends with the, the director Lonnie Rosenstahl. Her close friendship with several women throughout her life, including Marlene Dietrich. I know that name. I've heard that name. I think uh, in our LGBTQ episodes, I think she slept with some of our women. <laughs> I hate to break her down to that, but if we haven't covered her, we may not know more of her story. And Cecil Cunningham led to rumors of lesbianism. <gasps> See, Anna May! Uh, which damaged her public reputation. These, no! These rumors in particular of her supposed relationship with Dietrich embarrassed Anna's family, who in any case had been long opposed to her acting career. At this time, it was not considered an entirely respectable profession. So she's got the acting against her, and then she's got this And now, yeah, suddenly people think she's a lesbian, yeah. Was she, like, was she um, a member of the LGBTQ plus community? I don't believe so. Okay. Um... Sorry, hold on. London producer Basil Dean uh, bought the play A Circle of Chalk for Anna to appear in with the young Lawrence Olivier. <gasps> oh, snap. Uh, her first stage performance in the UK. So this with been Lawrence Olivier. Olivier. Mm. Criticism of her California accent. So she had a oh, my God. Accent. She was clueless. Uh, described by one critic as a Yankee squeak. Led to Anna seeking vocal tutoring at Cambridge University, where she trained in res- in received pronunciation. Composer Constant Lambert infatuated with the actors. I like can't read my screen for some reason. <laughs> Hold on, let me make it bigger. There we go. It was like smaller than average. That's why. Composer Constant Lambert infatuated with the actress after having seen her in films, attended the play on its opening night, and subsequently composed eight poems of Li Po dedicated to her. Eight poems dedicated to her from this performance yep wow yep you know what i like about her too is like you know say what you will whether the criticism of her accent was justified or not but she's like i'm gonna do better i'm gonna learn and i'm gonna do better so i can you know advance myself in my career and she put in the work yeah anna made her last silent film piccadilly in 1921 the first of five english films in which she had a starring role wow the film caused an absolute sensation in the UK. Gilda Gray was the top-billed actress, but Variety commented on Anna saying she outshines the star. And from that, uh, from the moment uh, Anna dances in the kitchen's rear, she steals Piccadilly from Miss Gray. Whoa. Yep. Though the film presented Anna in her most sensual role in a British film, once again, she was not permitted to kiss her Caucasian love interest in a controversial planned scene involving a kiss was cut before the film was released. Oh, boo. Forgotten for decades after its release, Piccadilly was later restored by the British Film Institute and it is known as her best film. 
that's crazy that she's not even the lead actress, but they're all right. like, oh my God, have you seen Anna May? She is fucking amazing. Right. And The Guardian even says that the rediscovery of this film and her performance in this film is responsible for the restoration of her reputation. Wow. So, so it was kind of that. That's a thing. That sometimes with women's legacies, we get these peaks and valleys where it's like at the time of their life, they're really big and then they're forgotten and then they're almost like rediscovered and they're shot back right, into the spotlight. Exactly. So while in London, Anna was romantically linked with the writer and broadcasting executive Eric Mashwitz. Um, they think maybe he wrote um, the lyrics to the, these foolish things remind me of you to her, but there's no like confirmation of that. He didn't write it in his diary. By the way, <laughs> this is for anime. No. Kelly um, and Emily, just so you know, this was for anime. Yeah. Uh, Anna's first talkie was The Flame of Love, which she recorded not only in English, but in French and German as well. Though Anna's performance, particularly her handing of, handling of the three languages, was lauded, all three versions of the film received negative reviews. So it oh. wasn't like her fault. It was just kind of a shitty film. Like, they're like, man, you know, Anna did a great job in this, but the movie just wasn't great. During the 1930s, American studios were looking for fresh European talent. Ironically, oh my god, Anna Anna May caught their eye, and she was offered a contract with Paramount Studios in 1930. Enticed by the promise of lead roles and top billing, she returned to the United States. The prestige and training she had gained during her years in Europe led to a starring role on Broadway in On the Spot. So she returns, and she's like, "I'm stronger than ever." Right. It's kind of like uh, Josephine Baker. I was going to say, this is surprisingly similar to that story. So On the Spot was a drama that ran for 167 performances and which she would later film as Dangerous to Know. So that's pretty sweet. Holy crap. 160. Yeah. That's like half a year's worth of performances. When the play's director wanted Anna to use stereotypical Jan- Japanese mannerisms derived from Madame Butterfly... Um, in her performance of a Chinese character, she refused. She instead used her knowledge of Chinese style and gestures to imbue the character with a greater degree of authenticity. Following her return to Hollywood in 1930, Anna repeatedly turned to the stage in cabaret for a creative outlet. Wow. Good for her for kind of using her power and her platform to be like, this isn't how people act. Let me show you. Um, in November of 1930, Anna's mother was unfortunately struck and killed by an automobile automobile in front of her house. Oh. The rest of the family remained in the house until 1930, and then Anna's father returned to his hometown in China with Anna May's younger brothers and sister. To his second family that I'm just making up maybe right. don't exist. <laughs> Anna May had been paying for the education of her younger siblings who put their education to work after they relocated to China, which is oh, nice. Oh, good for her. She's like, hey, I spent all my money going to uh, the movies instead of school, but you right. guys go to school. I support you. <laughs> Before the family left, Anna's father wrote a brief article in Zinning, a magazine for overseas Taishanese in which he expressed his pride in his famous daughter. Which is cute, because he never, like, was really super into it. So that's really sweet. Which, honestly, I can't entirely blame him, because if your small child was like, I'm going to, instead of going to school, I want to be an actress. And then as a teenager, she's like, I'm going to be an actress. It's like, go to school, Jesus. Which, I mean, she did eventually for vocal coaching. Right. (laughs) (laughs) At fucking Cambridge. I don't think that's exactly what he had in mind. But, like... 
you know, as a parent, you would worry. Like, oh, yeah. uh, but so I'm glad that even though he left and went back to China, that he's like, you know what, I'm proud of you. Well, she was fine. Yeah, she didn't oh, yeah. need him. So, with the promise of appearing in a Joseph von Sternberg film, Anna accepted another stereotypical role mm-hmm. of the title character of Fu Manchu's vengeful daughter in the movie Daughter of the Dragon. This was the last st- stereotypical quote evil Chinese role Anna would play. Thank God. And also her her one starring appearance alongside the only other well-known Asian actor of the era, Suse Hawakawa. So they finally crossed paths. Yep. Did they get to kiss? Uh, I don't think so because she was playing the evil person. Well, they have you ever seen a Bond film? All of the evil chicks kiss Bond. Though she was given the starring role, the status was not reflected in her paycheck. I didn't look up the numbers for this, so sorry. She was paid $6,000, while Hawakawa received $10,000, and Warner Oland, who was only in the film for 23 minutes, was paid $12,000. Are you joking? So the the guy that was in for 23 minutes, he was white, right? Probably. Okay. I think this is a perfect example of like how the hierarchy goes because it's like white guy, ethnic guy, ethnic woman or woman, you know, like you you just like. I kind of wish there would have been another woman in the film to see what she was paid, like to see it like. Like it's would used she in have, studies. Would to she show have pay been disparity? between the white guy and the ethnic guy, or would she have been under the ethnic guy? Right, would have been interesting. Oh my god, that is twenty-three minutes, and he's paid more than the two leads. Right. Ugh. Anna began using her newfound celebrity to make political statements late in 1931. For example, she wrote harsh criticism of the Mukden incident and Japan's subsequent invasion of Manchuria. She also became more outspoken in her advocacy for Chinese-American causes and for better film roles. Good for her. Right. In, an, in a 1933 interview with Film Weekly entitled I Protest, Anna criticized the negative stereotyping in, in The Daughter of the Dragon, saying, quote, Why is it that screen Chinese is always the villain? And so crude a villain, murderous, treacherous, a snake in the grass. We are not like that. How could we be with a civilization that is so many times older than the West? End quote. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Someone needs some ice for that burn. Right. That That is amazing. And such a good point, too. It's like, I'm sorry. Do you think literally every Chinese person is going to murder you? Yeah, I know. So Anna appeared along Marlene Dietrich. We're coming back to Marlene. All right. As a a self-sacrificing courtesan in Sternberg's Shanghai Express. Her sexually charged scenes with Dietrich have been noted by many commentators and only fed the rumors of a relationship between the two. I ship it. Though contemporary reviews focused on Dietrich's acting and Sternberg's direction, film historians today judge that Anna's performance upstaged that of Marlene. Wow. Yeah. I still ship it. (laughs) <laughs> in both America and Europe, Wong had been seen as, as a fashion icon for over a decade. So remember, she, we said she was cultivating her image and then never came back to it? Yeah, she was like going yeah. hard in the flapper paint. Yeah, she did really well. Um, and in 1934, the Mayfair Mannequin Society of New York voted her the world's best dressed woman. Oh, my God. And in, yes. and in 1938, Look Magazine named her the world's most beautiful Chinese girl. I don't know why you have to qualify. I know, right? I'm like, can't can't we just stick with the world's most beautiful woman? After her success in Europe and her prominent role in the Shanghai Express in America, 
And his Hollywood career unfortunately returned to its old patterns Boo. because of the Hayes codes. Oh my God, you motherfucker, <laughs> Hayes! Miscegenation Mis- rules. She was passed over for leading female roles in The Sun Daughter in favor of Helen Hayes. Spelled differently. There's an okay. e in that one. I know. Like- uh, the dear listeners, my pause was like, wait, did he have a daughter? Like, is that why he did this shit? But no, he it's just wanted to make sure his daughter would never have to kiss an ethnic person for a role, and that's why he was like, I'm gonna be a dick about the right. movies. Metro Goldwyn Mayer deemed her quote too Chinese to play a Chinese. I'm sorry. What did you? Um, what? Because <laughs> I guess the son, the son daughter mu- must be a Chinese film. But yeah, they they told her she was too Chinese to play a Chinese in the film. Uh, and the a hate- white person is right. saying you are Chinese person. You are too Chinese to play a Chinese person. As a white person, right. I am an authority. So that coupled with the fact that the Hayes office would not have allowed her to perform romantic scenes with the film's male lead, Ramon Navarro, who is not Asian. Um, she was scheduled to play the role of the mistress of a corrupt Chinese general um, in a different movie at the time, but the role went to someone else. But again, it was kind of like an evil Chinese lady role. Exactly. Uh. So once again, disappointed with Hollywood, she returned to Britain. Good for her. Yep. She stayed for nearly three years this time. In addition to appearing in four films, she also toured Scotland and Ireland as part of a vaudeville show. She also appeared in King George Silver Jubilee program in 1985, and she produced a film, Java. Well, it says her film. I guess I should have looked into that. So she produced her own film? No, I don't think so. I think they're saying her film in that she was... The star. The star. So in the, I'm just going to go with in the film. Okay. Java Head, though generally considered a minor effort on her part, was the only film in which Anna kissed the lead male character, her white husband, in the film. Yes! Go, girl! Okay, so the Star Trek kiss was the first one in America? Yeah, that must have been America. Okay. Anna's biography... Well, and it doesn't even say that that was the first one ever. It's just right. her only one. Um, Anna's biographer, Graham Russell Hodges, commented that this may be why the film remained one of her personal favorites. Aww. She's like, I finally got to kiss my, you know, op- like differing race co-star. Right. Yeah, it was a big deal. Well, I'm sure she knew how big of a deal that oh, was yeah. because she had lost roles because they're like, yeah, but you guys are supposed to kiss. And because you're Chinese, you're physically unable to do that. Right. While in London, Anna happened to meet Mei Lang Lan Fang, who was one of the most famous stars of the Beijing opera at the time. She had long been interested in Chinese opera and may offer to instruct instruct Anna if she ever visited China. So that's that's pretty cool. Oh my god, it's like strong female wonder twin vibes where they're right. just like let's join forces and take over the world with our amazingness. So Anna returned to the US in 1935 um, with the goal of obtaining the role of Olan, the lead female character in MGM's film version of The Good Earth which was a popular novel that came out around the same time. Since its publication in 1931, okay, so it came out in 1931, Anna had made known her desire to play Olan in a film version of the book. And as early as, sorry, my stomach kind of (laughs) hurts. And as early as 1933, Los Angeles newspapers were touting Anna as the best choice for this part. So she wants it. The newspapers are like, yeah, she should fucking have it. But uh, nevertheless, damn it. 
The studio apparently never seriously considered Anna for the role because Paul Mooney, an actor of European descent, was to play Olan's husband, Wang Lung, and the Hayes Code prohibited portraying Miss Synergation on camera. Although both characters were Chinese in the story, the actors were not the same race, so it risked running afoul of the Hayes Code. It's totally cool for a white guy to pretend to be an Asian guy for a movie, but God forbid a Chinese woman and a white man kiss, even if he's pretending to be. Like, it doesn't make sense any way you slice it, which is the, this is why, like, the whole racism and all that stuff boggles the mind because like how did this ever make sense how did anyone say this out loud and not just get laughed into oblivion yeah yeah the chinese government also advised the studio against casting anna in the role what with the chinese advisor to mgm saying quote whenever she appears in a movie the newspaper's printer picture with the caption anna may again loses face for china which is bullshit because she gets really good reviews Wait, so China was seeing her as an embarrassment? Apparently, I don't know. That's so dumb. Although, well, although if, if they're putting her in stereotypical roles, that might be why. Well, those are the only roles that I know. Available. According sucks. to Anna, she was instead offered the part of Lotus, a deceitful song girl who helps destroy the family and seduces the family's oldest son. She refuses the role, telling the production manager, quote, if you let me play Olan, I will be very glad. But you're asking me, with Chinese blood, to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese characters. So, yeah. Uh, the role she hoped she had hoped for went to Louis... It must be Louise. Louise. Louise Rayner, who won best, best, the Best Actress Oscar for her, for her role. God damn it. That's super dumb. Like, I'm sure she did a great job, but I don't really give a shit because this is dumb and I'm angry. <laughs> Later that year, Wong's sister, Mary Lou Quang Wong, appeared in the film in the role of the... Li- oh, no. In the same film. So her sister was in, in, the role, uh, in the role of Little Bird in that film. MGM's refusal to consider... Anna, for the, the most ho- high-profile Chinese characters in U.S. film, is remembered today as, quote, one of the most notorious cases of casting discrimination in the 1930s. Yeah, because it was dumb. Right. So after that major disappointment, Anna announced plans for a year-long tour of China <laughs> to visit her father and his family. Um, so as I said, her, his father had returned to the hometown with her younger siblings and... Um, Aside from Mei Lan Fang, the person she met, offered a teacher she wanted. She wanted to learn more about Chinese theater and the English translations to perform Chinese plays better right. for international audiences. So she embarked in 19, January of 1936 and chronicled her experience in a series of articles printed in U.S. newspapers such as the New York Herald Tribune, the Los Angeles Examiner, the Los Angeles Times, and Photoplay. In a stopover in Tokyo on the way to Shanghai, local reporters ever curious about her romantic life, asked if she had marriage plans, to which she replied, quote, no, I am wedded to my art. Oh, that's really cool. It is really cool. Unfortunately, the following day, Japanese newspapers reported that Wong was married to a wealthy Cantonese man named Art. I was, th- oh my God, I was going to joke like, she was married to a guy named Art. You have yep. to be joking. Nope. Okay, quick, quick sidestep. I was watching um, 
oh, it was like Cake Boss on yeah. TV. And I was like cleaning and watching it and just kind of making fun of it because I'm an unhappy person. Yeah. And there was this couple that was like getting their wedding cake done. And they're like, and the lady's like, so because us getting married is like the next step in our relationship and our lives. And before she can finish, I'm like, I want our cake to be stairs. Like I start joking that she's going to ask for stairs because that's too fucking absurd to be real. And the next words out of her mouth is, I want the cake to be stairs. I'm like, shut <laughs> your mouth you oh, have to be kidding me i hope she is not listening but i have never that is laughed. the best thing so and they made it stairs it was like it was like a tear cake but half of it was stairs i'm like what no that's so funny and this is the same thing it's like oh ha 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 wouldn't this be funny oh my god they did it <laughs> that's hilarious oh my goodness that's so Sorry. This is this is fucking if it wasn't so sad it would be more funny right. but I'm like crying right now. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> During her travels in China, Anna continued to be strongly criticized by the nationalist government and the film community. She found she had difficulty communicating in many areas of China because she was ra- raised with the Taishan dialect versus Mandarin. Right. Um she later commented that some of the varieties of Chinese sound quote Sounded as strange to me as Gaelic. I thus had the strange experiences of talking to my own people through an interpreter. End quote. Oh, man. Well, I wonder if she was expecting to go there and finally feel like she was amongst her own I don't think so, people? because it sounds like she already had an interpreter. So right. my guess is no. Okay. But still, that's got to be kind of like, okay, they don't want me in America. They kind of don't want right. me here. Like, Britain's yeah. super chill on me. Unfortunately, this the toll of international celebrity on Anna's personal life man- started manifesting itself in bouts of depression and anger. Mm. She also began excessively smoking and drinking. Uh, feeling irritable when she would disembark in Hong Kong, she was uncharacteristically rude to the awaiting crowd, which quickly turned hostile toward her. Uh, one person shouted, quote, down with Huang Li Song, the stooge that disgraces China. Don't let her go ashore. Oh, that's Anna sad. began crying and a stampede ensued. She left for a short trip to the Philippines. The situation cooled and Anna joined her family in Hong Kong. With her father and her siblings, Anna visited his family and his first wife. Yep, he was double married. Okay, okay. So I've been making jokes about it, feeling like kind of a dick. I was right. Although that could have been normal back then to be like, I have a wife here and a wife back home. I don't know. Who- I don't know. Um, but obviously like, you know, the family apparently doesn't care. They got back to maybe he divorced her, got married to his second wife in the United Came States. And, and when she tragically yeah. dies, like like they met up at a bar sure. and were like, hey, sure. take two. <laughs> so they went back to the ancestral home. There are conflicting reports of whether she was warmly met- welcomed or met with hostility of those vi- villagers. But we don't know. She spent over 10 days in her family's village and some time in the neighboring vi- villages before continuing her tour of China. She then returned to Hollywood and she reflected on her year saying, quote, I am convinced that I could never play in a Chinese theater. I have no feeling for it. It's a pretty sad situation to be rejected by Chinese because I am, quote, too American by American producers because they prefer other races to act Chinese parts. She's too Chinese for America and she's too American for, for China. That's basically God, it. that sucks. Yeah. To complete her contract with Paramount Pictures, because remember, she did unfortunately have a contract with them. Mm hmm. 
Um, Anna made a string of B-movies in, in the late 1930s. Often dismissed by critics, the fil- film gave Anna non-stereotypical roles, which were publicized in the Chinese-American press for their positive images. But no one gave a shit. No. There were small-budget films that um, that could be bolder than the high-profile releases, and Anna used this to her advantage to portray successful professional Chinese-American characters. It's almost... So I get their B-movies, so they're not high quality high art or anything but it kind of reminds me of like a big actor that goes and does a bunch of little indie films that a lot of people don't see but it's like this is someone who should have been a big actor yeah yeah but it was great work so these films act like worked against the prevailing u.s film portrayals of chinese american and in contrast to the usual official chinese condemnation of long's film roles the chinese consul in los to Los Angeles gave his approval for the final scripts of two of the films she she performed in. Probably because they're like, yeah, okay, good. You're portraying it well. You know, I don't know. You know, there was this play that I read. I took a class in college, Playwrights of Color, and we kind of went through, you know, like black playwrights, Latino playwrights, Asian playwrights. And there was this one play where it was an older Chinese man who was a famous actor and a younger Chinese man who was like just breaking into the industry. And the younger man criticized the older man for taking all these stereotypical roles that had made him really famous. He's like, I'm never going to sell out my country or my ethnicity for that. Well, as he learns through himself and the older actor, when that's all they're going to give you, you kind of have to work your way up to the point where you can enact change. And so it was like that, it's it's like a catch-22. You have to take what they give you to get, you know, more famous so then you can demand better roles and this and that. And so it was just that, hey, it's not as easy as just waiting out for a non-stereotypical role when there literally are none. Yeah. Yeah, you're not a sellout. You're just living, you're you're living in your time. Yeah, that's true. So in, in one of the films the Chinese console liked or whatever called uh, Daughter of Shanghai, she played an Asian-American female lead role that was rewritten for her as the heroine of the story, actively setting the plot into motion rather than a passive character originally planned. The script was so carefully tailored for Anna that at one point it was given the working title Anime Wong Story. Yes. Love it. Of this film... Anna said, quote, I like my part in this picture better than any I've had before because this picture gives Chinese a break. We have sympathetic parts for a change. To me, that means a great deal. Aww. The New York Times gave the film generally positive review, but did comment on its B origins because of course. Well, fuck. Like, I don't know what else they want. I don't know what they want. Um, in October 1937, because the press is the press, press carried rumors that Anna had plans to marry her, the male co-star from this film. Art. Childhood friend and Korean-American actor Philip Ahn. Anna replied to these rumors saying it would be like marrying my brother. Aww. Because they were childhood friends. Yeah, they were like besties. Like he was skipping school to go with her to the movies. Probably. (laughs) Um, Paramount decided to employ Anna as a teacher for other actors such as Dorothy Lamar and... In her role of Eurasian in Disputed Passage, Anna performed on the radio several times. So we're kind of getting, you know, she's getting older. She's getting to her later career. Yep. Uh, she had a cap- cabaret act, which included songs in Cantonese, 
French, English, German, Danish, Swedish, and other languages. It's still blowing my mind that she speaks like every language. Yep. Uh, the tour of her cabaret act went from uh, toured the U.S., Europe, and Australia in the 1930s and 40s. That's awesome. In 1938, she auctioned off her movie costumes and donated the money to Chinese aid, Aww. which caused the Chinese Benevolent Association of California to honor her for her work supporting Chinese refugees, which is really sweet. And I was Aww. like, Aww. I'm glad she's getting some love, especially because everyone's just kind of like, you suck. Right. <laughs> Between 1939 and 1942, she didn't make a whole lot of films and was instead engaging in events and appearances in support of the Chinese struggle against Japan. Wow. Um, Being sick of the typecasting that had enveloped her throughout her American career, Anna visited Australia for more than three months in 1939. This is when she was touring with her cabaret act. And so she, she stayed and worked at the Trivoli Theater in Melbourne, which I think is a very famous theater. That's I don't cool. Know. Is that I don't Melbourne? Know. Melbourne. Sorry. Melbourne. Melbourne. Changing no, I, the name. I thought that's how they said it, though. Is because it? Because they don't spell it like they say it, Australia. Too bad I'm going with Melbourne because that's how it's spelled. If you get mad at us, just email us and we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Right. Um. So Anna starred in two films in 1942, Bombs Over Burma and The Lady of Chungking, both uh, were anti-Japanese propaganda made by the Poverty Row Studio Producers Releasing Corporation. Mm. She donated her salary from both films to the United China Relief. Wow. So, like, she was really getting into helping, which she was always kind of And her that. activism. Yeah. Yeah. The critics gave the lady from Chungking positive reviews, but commented negatively on the plot of the film. Well, the plot sucks, but anime was pretty cool. Right. Later in life, she invested in real estate and owned a number of properties in Hollywood. She converted her home in San Vincent Boulevard in Santa Monica into four apartments, which she called the Moongate Apartments. I like that. Which is cute. She served as the apartment house manager from the late 1940s uh, until the 1956 until she moved in with her brother, Richard on 21st place in Santa Monica. In 1949, her father died in Los Angeles at the age of 91. Wow. Yep. And and then after a six-year absence, Anna finally returned to film that same year, so 1949, with a small B-roll in a movie called Impact. From August 27th to the uh, November 21st, 1951, she starred in a detective series that was written specifically for her, <gasps> the Dumont Television Network series, The Gallery of Madame Lu Song. That's super cool. Wasn't that her name? Yeah. Like in, her in which she name? played the title role that sh- that used her birth name. Oh, yeah. that's so cool! Yeah, the character was a dealer of Chinese art whose career involved her detective work and international intrigue. The ten half-hour episodes aired during prime time from nine to nine thirty. Although there were plans for a second season, Dumont canceled the show in 1952. Oh, bull. unfortunately, no copies of the show or its <gasps> script are known to exist. I was just going to say, I want to go watch that. After the completion of of the series, her health began to deteriorate. And in late 1953, she suffered an internal hemorrhage, which her brother attributed to the onset of menopause. What? She continued because hemorrhage, it's like a your blood vessel burst so yeah but yeah, like can you know. hemorrhage from menopause i don't know i thought you got hot i'm flashes. too young for that um, oh my god is that what we have to look forward to in 20 years right no she, 30 can, years? she continued heavily drinking and 
began having financial worries. However, in 1956, she hosted one of the first U.S. documentaries on China, narrated entirely by a Chinese-American. Wow. Broadcast on the ABC travel series Bold Journey, the program consisted of film footage from her 1936 trip to China. She also did guest spots on television series Adventures in Paradise, The Barbara Stanwyck Show, and The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. Cool. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I'm like, <laughs> You're like, Kel- Emily, I, I know. fucking know. I did the research. You don't have right? to tell me how awesome she is. For her contribution to the film industry, Anna Mae Wong received a star at 1708 <gasps> Vine Street on the inauguration of Hollywood's Walk of Fame in 1960. Yay! She is Finally. also depicted larger than life as one of the four supporting pillars of the Gateways to Hollywood sculpture located on the southeast <gasps> corner of Hollywood Boulevard and La Brea Avenue. Oh, my God. So it's, it's her, Dolores Del, Del Rio, which is a, a, a Hispanic actor or Hispanic-American, Dorothy Danridge, which is who is an African-American, and Mae West, who is a white American. And they're all women. Yep. Yes. In 1960, Wong returned to film again for the A Portrait in Black starring Lana Turner. She still found herself stereotyped with one press release explaining her long absence from film with a supposed proverb which claimed to have been passed down by her father. Quote, don't be photographed too much or you'll lose your soul. A quote that would be inserted into many of her obituaries. Okay, so they basically made up some ancient Chinese legend about her father and that became her legacy? Ugh! Uh, Anna was scheduled to play the role of Madame Liang in the film production of Roger and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song, but was unable to take the role due to failing health. On February 3rd, 1961, at the age of 56, Anna died of a heart attack as she slept at home in Santa Monica two days after her final screen performance on the television show, The Barbara Sandwich Show. She was cremated and her remains were interred in her mother's grave at the Rosedale Cemetery in Los Angeles. The headstone is marked with her mother's angelicized name on top, the Chinese names of Anna Mae on the right, and her sister Mary on the left. Anglicized? Yep. Okay. Like Americanized? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We can go visit her, though. Yeah, we can. Now we have a reason to go to Hollywood. <laughs> so, legacy. She clearly left a notable legacy. Like, yeah. Um, through her films and public appearances and prominent magazine features, she helped to humanize Chinese Americans to white audiences during a period of overt racism and discrimination. Chinese Americans had long been viewed as perpetually foreign in the U.S. society, but her films and public image established her as a Chinese American citizen at a time when laws discriminated against her. Her hybrid image dispelled contemporary notions that the East and West were inherently different. Among her films, only Shanghai Express retained critical attention in the U.S. in the decades after her death. In Europe, and especially England, her films appeared occasionally at festivals. She remained popular with the gay community, who often claimed her as one of their own, and for whom her marginalization by the mainstream became a symbol. Oh, so she's a gay icon. Yeah, even though they're after, not after, sure what she was. After everyone, like, claiming she's a lesbian, right. they are like... They're like, sure, she's, she's a lesbian. She's an honorary lesbian. Like, right. fuck it, she's fantastic. I think it's great. I like that. Although the Chinese nationalists criticized her portrayals of dragon lady and butterfly stereotypes lingered, she was forgotten in China. Nevertheless, the importance of Anna's legacy with the Asian American film community can be seen in the Anime Wong Award of Excellence, which is given yearly at the Asian American Arts Art Awards. Aww. 
Um, the annual award given out at Asian Fashion Designers is also named after her, which is cute. I love that even though she was forced to take all of these really stereotypical, super non-dynamic roles, just her being out there doing her thing made it a little bit easier for right. the next generation to do their thing. Right. Um, so there's been, I'm not going to go into it because there's a bunch, <laughs> but there's She's like, a there, there's been a poem written about her and several poems actually. And as the centennial of her birth ap- approached, a reexamination of her life and career took shape. Three major works on the actress appeared and comprehensive retrospectives of her films were held at both the Museum of Modern Art and the American Museum of the Moving Image in New York. Wow. And that would have been, what year did I say she was born? She was born in 1905. So 2005? Yeah. Wow. Fairly modern. Why does 2005 simultaneously feel like yesterday and, and also a hundred years ago? ago? Yeah. Oh my God. I was like in eighth grade. Right. Oh God. That's crazy. So yeah. She was a pretty big deal that I had never heard of. I was going to say she's like an icon of, you know, Asian American Hollywood and never heard of her yeah and sorry that took so long that was a long one she 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 did did a fucking lot everything right i know she did everything and here's the thing i don't think she should be criticized for taking stereotypical roles because just her being out there was huge right and if that's all they're offering and then when she did get bigger she was using her platform to To, advocate for chinese people but also just like more non-stereotypical roles and god when she got right. those roles oh, yeah. she and, and owned I mean, them then people started writing roles like for her that's yeah. huge it's like i'm sorry the world around her was a bunch of assholes but she killed it i mean w- like what would you rather her just be like oh i can't get a non-stereotypical i guess i'm just not gonna be an actress right well exactly. then we wouldn't have anyone yeah it would just all still be white people all white people white and it people. practically That'd be so boring. is already <laughs> that'd be so boring but yeah i i want to look up the name of that play because that tackled that whole issue of you know taking stereotypical roles and like it's necessity but also like how it sucks and yeah just kind of the generational gap in that of the younger generation only oh, yeah. being able to complain about it or fight it because of the older generation yeah that trudge through the bullshit exactly Wow, that was a great story. Welcome 2020. We are right? killing it. <laughs> I know. We just, you know, we had to do. A, I had to do a big one. Go big or go home. I love it. I'm I love it home, so much. So Kelly, what are you thankful for? What is the first thing in 2019? But it's like the last thing in 2019. I know. I'm like the first thing in 2019. What are but you the about? but the first thing in 2020, according to our listeners. Because remember, we're time travelers and we went to 2019 because it was just so much fun. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. No. This year, go suck a dick. Oh, my God. (laughs) I feel like I feel that that way about every year. And I'm like, like at the beginning of this, I was like, 2019 is going to be better. It has to be better. And then it's just like, we started our podcast, though. Right. Exactly. There have been some good that has come out of 2019. Yeah. Not a lot, but some. Well, here's the other thing. In my life we're still here we're still here because i know i struggle with like suicidal ideation and all like the you the know fun stuff the fun stuff the static in your brain but i'm here and i made it and i'm gonna make it through 2020 so help me god right 
Because I have to for the and podcast. Many, many more years. You will not replace me, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, I'm going to say, actually, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go with I'm thankful for this podcast and, you know, the fun we have. You know, I feel like it's made our friendship deeper and stronger and we have a lot of fun. I get to learn a shit ton of new things. Right. And I, I truly enjoy this. Like, I don't view this as, like, another job like some podcasters might. Like, I truly enjoy this, and I want to share these stories with people. And even if it doesn't go anywhere, I want to share these stories with you. Aw, I'm going to cry. It's my first breakdown of 2020 slash third to last breakdown of 2019. I I know myself. Yeah. I know myself. It's realistic expectations. Yeah. You got to set them. Um... Well, God, that was beautiful. Now I just feel like an asshole. Um, I'm really thankful for your friendship. I'm thankful for the podcast, too, because we've been very close friends for over 10 years now. By the time this podcast comes out, it's going to be over 10 years. And we, but we kind of, after I stopped living with you, it kind of was one of those, oh, we should hang out. Well, two months later, you know, we finally hang out. We finally hang out because life gets so busy. And so this is, Force sounds like it's against our will, but this uh, gives us an excuse to really push hanging out. I like that. And I love all of the women that we've gotten to learn about, and I'm constantly referencing them in my day-to-day. Even if I don't remember their names, I'm like, there was someone that did something that's related to what you're talking about right now. This one lady. Let me tell you. And like to the chagrin of everyone around me, because I've become such a hearse trainer. You can just see there like, be like... Emily, shut the fuck up. We get it. Women are cool. Stop. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Let me tell you how cool. Yeah. And if you if you want to engage in the conversation, listen to my podcast and learn about the women for yourself. I don't know. Okay. It's thing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback off that's you. Fine. I'm so thankful for this podcast. I love getting to learn about all of these different women and really I feel like I'm getting a better understanding of history as a whole because you can't talk about a woman without talking about the world in which she lived. Right. Like, I learned that the English Civil War was like a bad rash that just kept coming back. Right. I didn't know that. I've never thought about the English Civil War. Right, I only exactly. think about the American Civil War. That was not like a bad rash. It was, that was, well, that was just one rash. It was one long, drawn-out <laughs> rash. That's funny. That finally went away when we decided, okay, maybe slavery is a bad right. idea and a bunch of people died and it was a bummer all around. Right. So while we're talking about history and our, our love of learning about history, I'm going to give another shout out to someone I've shouted out before, um, Bonnie, and her project that they have going on. Um, so it's Bonnie Fillenworth, Kate Harris, and Dr. Leah Leach. And they're working toward, they have a site on ifundwomen.com if you go there, search for Gal's Guide Women's History Library. Um, and their mission is to build the first independent women's history library and research center in the United States to preserve, collect, share, and champions women's achievements and lessons learned. Currently, they're just they just want to do like a pop-up, like to get started, because obviously it's gonna take years to actually like make a library. Yeah, that's not something you do overnight, like starting a podcast with your best friend. Right. <laughs> but they're they're looking for funding to do a pop-up event that I think would be really cool. And it's something we would definitely travel to if it happens. So go check it out, read what they're doing, and donate. Please do. And uh, what was that? GoFundWomen.com? Yep. How have I never I heard women. of that? I, I fund, fund women. women. 
Com. God, that's amazing. I so know. whining about history is definitely backing this event. We're going to try to be there as participants. We're not special enough to be like an attraction, Ooh. but we're just going to be like, like, we're going to be Belle in the opening of Beauty and the Beast where we're like on the ladder swinging around singing and yeah, touching right. all the books and like just. <laughs> that is exactly what we will be doing. Yeah. I'm going to wear my little blue dress and my apron and be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure no goats eat any of them. Yeah. Fuck you, goats. The only goats I want to see are all these women because they're the greatest of all time. <laughs> I recently learned what that meant because I had to look it up because I'm old. Enlighten our <laughs> listeners. Yep. Greatest no. of all time. Oh. Enlighten our listeners. Oh, goat me is like an, a, an acronym for greatest of all time. So you I actually call- didn't know that either. Okay, well, uh, so I was we're like, learning. okay, you're calling women goats. That's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm not trying to be like a dick. I know. But... I was like, are we being offensive right now? No, I saw this okay. thing where it was like, oh, check out these goats, and I was like, these aren't goats. These are people. <laughs> she, she clicked on the image, hoping for really cute goat pictures, and she's I like, was. the fuck is this shit? Okay, speaking of goat, though, I have an idea for a horrible movie where it's um. It's uh, about a goat who wants to become a a rock musician and, like, leave his quiet life on the farm. And it's called Kid Rock and the goat is voiced by Kid Rock. (laughs) I don't even like Kid Rock, but I was like, the pun is there. It needs to happen. Yeah. Hollywood, you owe us for being a dick to anime. Make Kid (laughs) No, please. No, that's not what I'm going to use my favor on. Yeah, never mind. Never mind. That. Scratch that. I'm cutting that out. On uh, that note, if you want to see <laughs> us do anything, not make a film called Kid Rock, nope. um, hit us up on Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Send us an email. Let us know about the women in your life or, you know, women you want us to cover, topics, you know, anything. That's whiningabouthistory at gmail.com or check out our blog slash show notes on whiningabouthistory.com. Also like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory and Instagram at WAHpod. And rate us wherever you listen, particularly Apple Podcasts, because we know there's a lot of iOS listeners out there. Go do it. We see you. By the way. This podcast is ending. Just rate it. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> Sol and Tuna, I fucking see you guys. You're super <laughs> creeped out by right now, but I see you. <laughs> Look behind you. Ha <laughs> ha. They're probably listening and like that's that's not how you pronounce this town name. It's probably not, but it looks like it's spelled like sullen tuna. Like a sad (laughs) (laughs) So spell it like you say it. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.